You're listening to Code Punk with Bill Ahern and Michael Zool, a podcast about the intersection between programming, technology, and the digital lifestyle. Hello, Michael. How you doing, man? I'm on lockdown, man. It's it's, it's getting crazy out here. Um, yeah, it sure is. Uh, I mean, I get to I get to work from home, and you know. Luckily, I'm in a job that allows me to do that. And, uh, you know, unfortunately, I mean, the kids are home, the wife's home. I got a, I got a pretty nice desk, but I got to open a concept house. So, so there's a lot of noise going on. I got to keep my headphones on and keep my kids from running in front of the Microsoft Teams cam or the Zoom cam. But it's, it's been a, an interesting experience. Um, I mean, I, I get up at 5.15 still, so I'm generally working from like 5.30 in the morning until 5.30 in the afternoon because there's really nothing, Ooh. there's nothing else to do. And we had like a couple of warm days and then went back into some cold weather, so can't even go outside at this point. Um, so it's been, you know, it's been just us. And my wife is really good at the whole self-isolation thing, self-quarantine. So even though the neighbors are out running about, um, you know, with each other, like we've kind of stuck to staying here you know and and staying oh, yeah. local and just trying to trying to stay away from things but living yeah living inside of a city we're I'm, i definitely stay away from people and people in philadelphia aren't necessarily you know i would say it's kind of split you're you're seeing about half the there's a lot less people but of the people that you do see there's still not enough people practicing the social distancing i still see people not wearing masks um i kind of want to get through this i want this thing to be over and when I see that, I'm like, come on, people. Um, I've always had a problem with people spitting in the street or in the subway or wherever. I just find that to be just gross in general. And when I see it now, I kind of want to say something, you know, but I don't want to be antagonistic to people. But when I see that, I'm like, come on, man, really? Um, it's just, it's weird. But I will say one thing about this. It's interesting to me. You know, we were, they were tech backlash is building to a crescendo. And um, now it's, uh, you have to pardon my dogs. Um, there was a lot of tech backlash. You know, people, you, know, you tech is taking too much of our lives over. And now that we need it to communicate, now that we need it to, you know, kind of establish our communities in the absence of physical space, I see that, you know, it's kind of come to the rescue a bit. Um, my wife balked at that a little bit. I'm not saying the technologies are savior, savior necessarily, but at the same time, it kind of is. Um, yeah. Just as a sidebar, I've noticed that. Yeah, and you know, it's funny. Um we were just talking about Douglas Rushkoff because, you know, I'm a big fan of his, his earlier work, but he's kind of, I don't say he's gotten anti-tech, but some of his, some of his commentary has gotten anti-tech, but I've noticed that a lot of his uh, posts recently have been kind of this re-embracement or re-embracing of technology. Um, yeah. And, and I thought that now would be a good time for Facebook to kind of redeem itself after the whole Cambridge Analytica thing. I haven't really seen uh, too much. They have been doing some things with uh, COVID-19 and the coronavirus, but I'd like to see them kind of step things up a little bit. Um, I, I find it, you know, I find it interesting to see how, you know, all, all, all sorts of people and companies and, you know, things react to the situation at hand. Um, we're, we're definitely living in interesting times. Now, hopefully, like we still got another episode to, to post. I mean, it, today it's April 15th. We got another episode. We still have to post from the previous recording session. Um, so you probably got a good four weeks before this one here comes out. And so hopefully by the time you're listening to this, you're probably thinking, you know, those idiots, you know, everything's fine now. Um, <laughs> yeah. And that'd be my hope is that, is that you have that comment, but we'll, we'll see what yeah. happens. Um, 
But today we're going to talk about something interesting because I can't, like, I think we might have referenced the movie Hackers in 50% of the uh, podcasts. And it's always been kind of tongue in cheek uh, because Hackers is really kind of set up as a, as kind of a cheesy nineties style uh, movie. It was not necessarily a movie about hacking or a movie about hacker culture or computer culture so much as it, as it was somebody who doesn't necessarily understand computers' interpretation of it at that time and kind of an amalgamation of those things. So- it's Yeah, it's true. It was a version of the 90s that never existed. So you had elements that were very 90s, especially the rollerblades. I mean, pretty much nobody in the movie, um, none of the <laughs> hackers in the movie actually walked with their feet. Everyone was on rollerblades. Um, but at the same time, you know, it was like this kind of infusion of um cyber culture of the time um some of the rising concerns that people had but you know what's really cool is too um it became a cult classic now yeah. because and i saw it in the theaters four times uh because there was so there was so many little sort of cultural touch points uh the i'm trying to um the screenwriter Raphael Moreau, if I'm pronouncing his name right, um, actually kind of uh, when he wrote it, he made a lot of effort to get familiar with the hacker culture. Um, Johnny Lee Miller, the main character, so one of the main characters, uh, attended a hacker convention, and uh, um, some of the cast members met with real life hackers, including Kevin Mitnick, um, which is pretty interesting. I didn't know that until I was doing research for this show. Um, there was a lot of cultural like i said there's a lot of these things that they're kind of drawing from well-known i don't know preferences of like tech culture at the time like uh, a lot of references to jolt cola you know um but it was it's funny how um it really isn't tailored towards a tech audience you know it was it was and and it's interesting because to read to read some of the notes that the director uh, or at least like interviews from the director, um, you know, he was fascinated by the, the technology subculture, but he wanted to make it cinematic and in so doing flair, you know, and I remember I went in 2000 or was it 99? I, I don't remember, but I went to Beyond Hope, which is 2600's uh, big hacker convention in New York City. It's Hackers on Planet Earth, Hope. Um, and when I went, at that point now, hackers had been out for some years and the, I mean, there were legitimate, I mean, there's going to bring all kinds of people who are interested in it. This was pre matrix, you know, so hacking wasn't yet like bullet time and, and vinyl. Uh, really, this was the movie that kind of established the aesthetic up until that point. And so I remember there was one, one guy had actually uh, shown up in a limo and somebody said, Hey, the plague, like they were, they were, they had co-opted so much of this movie because even though it was corny, it was still cool, yeah, and it gave and them they, something to hang their hat on. You, you gotta if you if you made me choose, despite the corniness of this movie, which and corny is such a nineteen nineties term to even use, <laughs> um, but like if if you have the Matrix, which by all means, I mean I saw the Matrix seven times in the movie theater. I thought, the original I thought was a great film, but we were all talking like. Um, very grayscale, very dark black leather, um, you know, as far as the appearance. Hackers was extremely colorful. I mean, Hackers, as far as, and and yes, I mean, the 90s like that didn't necessarily exist. But like you said, a lot of the, you know, um, there were a lot of things that did. And just to me, the 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 colorfulness of uh, not necessarily the characters, but their attire, and, oh, and yeah. the places that they went was very much, you know, 
how the early 90s, I mean, the, the 80s kind of, the 80s was interesting because the 80s on an MTV scale gave us kind of that, um, what we would call today, you know, retro synth wave. It gave us that, that futuristic feel in the right. 80s. Um, but all of us who actually lived in the 80s probably had, uh, you know, wood paneling walls and, you know, wood paneling televisions, you know, we, right. we, we didn't really have it. It didn't look like what people now, when they think of the 80s, they think it was this cool kind of retro Nintendo, retro gaming, right. retro synthwave, high neon type deal. And really, it wasn't like that for those of us, especially those of us who didn't have money, who grew up in that way. But as we started to leak into the 90s, it was almost like the early 90s had some 80s envy. And so they actually started to adopt some of that that cultural style. But augmented in their own way, starter jackets and, you know, uh, as it started to come into the pop culture and everything. So it's, it had a really interesting feel. And, and I kind of, on a childish level, prefer that feel more than I prefer the more serious, you know, the world's ending tone of the matrix. It, yeah, it was more playful. You know, you've got um, Angelina Jolie's character, uh, Acid Burn. She's wearing like you know, all white yoga pants, a white zip up leather jacket. She's wearing hockey knee pads and shin guards, you know, and, uh, you know, like um, rollerblade uh, wrist guards. I mean, they're all kind of decked out in um, kind of like cyber armor, but using stuff that was actually available at the time, basically safety gear for hockey and rollerblading. And then they're kind of splashing a lot of color, you know, uh, uh, Dade Murphy who played like zero cool slash crash override, which is, you know, very much Gibsonian in the terms, right? Like taking it right out of the right, right out of his literature, and it's not the first time they do that in this movie. Um, you know, they, uh, you know, he's got like darker colors, and he'll have splashes of like neon orange. His his pager's neon orange, and he's wearing stuff that, you know, no actual computer nerd in the mid to early nineties would ever actually look like that. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> everybody was colorful. They were interesting. They were charismatic and outgoing, you know, and that's what I think was the appeal. And that's why I think it really resonated with the uh, hacker and tech community was because these were characters that were cool, but they were also knowledgeable. They were elite, you know, and uh, I, I made notes of that because, you know, they use that term a lot in the movie elite. You're elite. You're elite. You're not elite. You know, um, and that actually gave rise to what we now call elite speak, which I think has actually already been buried. Nobody does that anymore. You know, spelling elite with like numbers and random <laughs> letters. But it rose out of that. You're elite. You're a hacker. And it was kind of like a pseudo cryptographic kind of way to spell things. And I hated it. <laughs> I hated trying to. Re I remember it was right in the late 90s. Like people would write whole like missives in elite speak. Hey, Shugars, and, uh, when we worked at, at, at uh, Lime Systems, Shugars used to still put passwords in elite speak. Did he? Yeah. yeah I think him, him and Duck, him and Duck, Duck did it for a couple of uh, oh, things. <laughs> that's fine. But, you know, and again, see, but see, that's how it resonated. It gave, it gave tech people something to aspire to that was cool other than, you know, the Bill Gates you know, ultra, right? Like the pocket protector and the nerdy thing. This was cool. These were going to Cyberdelia, which was the name of the club yeah, in the movie, yeah. you know, giant full screen video games and people rollerblading around inside for no reason. Yeah, um, I have a bone to pick because there was, there were not cool places like that, like hacker nightclubs <laughs> when I was growing no. up where they did stuff. I mean, arcades, sure. You but could like, go to the mall. Yeah, that was about it, which is, I mean, this was, this is a mall movie. So I guess that kind of makes sense. I mean, it this was, was a 19, 1995 and we were talking Johnny Lee Johnny Lee Miller as the star um you know uh Angelina Jolie in a role before
before she was necessarily famous where she did a fantastic job as an actress in this. She was a femme fatale. She had a brain, um, very well-rounded character, uh, hilarious that although she's this supposed to be like the sex pot, as soon as somebody pulls out a computer, she just abandons her meathead boyfriend, you know, to go talk geek with these, uh, you know, with, with these other computer nerds. Right. I mean, I, I thought they portrayed her um, about as well as they would portray a female character in 1995. And then, of I, course, we had uh, – go ahead. No, I was going to say – I would say even better. I mean she was clearly a very – she's a you know pretty woman, was a pretty girl then. and uh, But I would still say that while they definitely didn't shy away from her physical attractiveness, they never let her become a victim of it. Right, yeah. Like yeah. she was all, she was pretty much dominant. Um, all throughout the movie, there were references where she was kind of the alpha – uh-huh. Yeah, <laughs> that's very true, right? Yeah, definitely. And um, I, 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 but I, I sidetracked it. What were you saying? Yeah, well, I'm just you know, some of the other characters like Matthew Lillard, of course, playing. Um, yeah, uh, that's the same character that Matthew Lillard plays in just about every film, which I guess is a crossover between his <laughs> Scooby Doo and Scream. Um, but you know, he played a good role in it. And then, of course, Fisher Stevens as the main bad guy. You're talking about vintage 1980s, you know, uh, Johnny Five fame, um, right? You know, uh, um, a short circuit, which you know he he played a very good villain in that too. And I thought he he did a good job of being the the corporate hacker, but still kind of thumbing his nose at the man, even though he's you know, doing their dirty work and making all this money. Um, you know, and, and, and even that relationship, you know, between him and Johnny Lee Miller character between, yeah, uh, those two guys, uh, wasn't all that cut and dry. Cause he kind of saw a kindred spirit and he was like, Oh, we, you know, we could just, you know, forget about it. We'll just take over the world together type deal, which, which I found to be, you know, I mean, that's, it didn't play out as you would think that a typical film in 1995 did i thought that as ridiculous as it was everybody had fun um and they just did the best with what they had which i thought was great yeah and that and you know there was a moment when i was because i rewatched it and um because i just want to get some notes although i'd seen the movie so many times i actually had a vhs that i did actually almost wear out <laughs> um it got again like on the edge of a certain just super just to get that fuzzy staticky part um because i would have it all i would just always play it in the background because the music the soundtrack is fantastic um i think the soundtrack really holds up today there's a few songs that i don't like but most of the songs i really like um just great techno just 90s techno just good stuff a lot of prodigy on there um i can't i don't know there was a lot of one hit wonder techno bands on on the soundtrack but i recommend and there's actually like the soundtrack itself is great. And then they actually released a like part two to the soundtrack. I only came across that maybe a few years ago. I didn't realize that um, a lot of songs that were like inspired by the movie, but I think it's an official soundtrack. Great, great songs though. And you know, as you're watching it, they got all this like cool nineties techno pump in with cyber Delia, the nightclub and all these sort of like neon colors mixed with like kind of earth tones, you know, as term in terms of like a palette, you, you kind of watch people and I'm thinking to myself, these people got to be having fun making this movie, you know, cause it's kind of ridiculous and over the top, you know? Uh, but you know, at the same time, again, I want to get back to how I, I honestly think that there was a lot of care put into crafting it. There's a lot of little details that maybe to somebody who's just watching it thinks, Oh, this is ridiculously corny. Um, but for me, somebody who was already entrenched in tech culture at that point, although I did, I, you know, I, I wasn't great at like hacking with a computer, but I was into phones and we've, you know, we've gone over that many times in the past. I was more into the phone freaking at that point. Cause I could, that's something you didn't need a computer for. And I didn't have money for a computer. 
Um, but there's all these little touches, you know? And so I kind of made notes from the beginning, um, towards the end of the movie, just little things that I noticed. I'm like, man, that really stands out. Um, you know, the beginning, the opening scene, Johnny, uh, Lee Miller's character, uh, crash override. He, he, he finally is able to touch a computer again after getting busted as zero cool little kid, uh, crashed in New York or not crash, but like, you know, caused a dip in the New York stock exchange and, you know, basically just got in trouble as like a, I forget how old he 12 or something like that, 11 year old kid or something. Really really young and, and basically took down computer systems, which caused financial havoc, which I mean, I thought the beginning exemplified the, the fear that people had of hacking during the the nineties and the two thousands, just with that opening scene alone. Yeah, it absolutely did. And it played into that really well. It used that fear. Um, actually, as part, part, there were parts of dialogue that came up because at the time in 95, you know, people there were, I remember there was sort of like, what is this hacker thing? You know, and so I remember talking about hackers uh, to one group of older women and they thought I was talking about like chopping people up with an axe, right? <laughs> so it wasn't even, it wasn't even a term that entered into like the lexicon of, of mainstream yet. You know, so it was really a great time for this movie to come out and um, but little stuff like so, he, you know, he's not allowed to touch a computer until he's 18. He turns 18. Then he spends all week um, just, you know, hacking away, uh, not with an axe. And one of the interesting things that um, came to my mind when I was when I watched that scene, and this is just how I feel in certain gaps, is I remember reading Kevin Paulson's book and Kevin Paulson, a similar thing had happened where or no, not, he, he didn't get busted as a kid, but he didn't have a computer. And I actually forget the details, but I know that he said he would just still think about code. He would just think about like writing code, even though he didn't have a computer. I mean, just write it down until such time that he was finally able to get to a computer, right? And I wonder, you know, if that's something that maybe the the screenwriter had had taken into account or something, because you know, as soon as as soon as you know, Zero Cool is able to get access to his computer, he's hacking away again. You know, like no, like learning it, like oh, how does this work? You know, because basically at that point, you're going to use a war dialer or you know, some sort of you know, you have to scan phone numbers to find out which one's the fax number or the or the modem. You know what I mean? You leave war dollar dialers running all night, and then you got to like either brute force them or try to do some social engineering to get the you know uh, what's the name the password. Thank you, <laughs> right? So you got to do all this stuff. But he's just into it. But again, it's a movie, so you got to like speed it up. And I just thought it was really cool stuff, like the social engineering I just mentioned. You know, so he calls up the television company and he talks to a fumbling night guard who doesn't know anything about computers and he manages to get you know the i I guess like the ip address or i forget now actually like you know he has him look under the box give me that number give me that password he hacks in and i just thought like the social engineering aspect that was a big deal like if you were interested in hacking in the mid 90s the social engineering component which of course kevin mitnick was excellent at as we discussed in in a previous episode um you know, that was a big part of it. And I love that they paid attention to those details. Um, that was really cool to me. Uh, and, and the other thing too with social engineering, they even involve like the trick. Like I remember reading about social engineering, how to social engineer. You want to endear yourself to that person. So you use their name a lot. That's actually why I do that today. It was because I was learning about social engineering. It was, they said, you know, when you talk to people, they're much more amenable if you remember their name. They feel like you're paying attention to them. And he does that in the movie. He calls the guy Norm. The guy's name is Norm. Um, the guard. So, you know, it's really cool that there was this level of attention to detail. Yeah, it can look like a cheesy, you know, mid 90s tech movie or, you know, you know, like a dorky coming of age movie for like computer nerds. But there was a lot of little details in there like that. 
Well, I think a good point that you brought up was that it wasn't it wasn't written for us. I mean, it was written written for a wider audience. So, what we take as being that cheesiness, or what we take as being the the type of inaccuracies or the corniness of the film, is a direct result of uh, taking this uh, this you know nerdy information and trying to distill it to something that somebody would want to watch on a movie. Um, and right. that's a good point to make. And I loved the opening scene. I mean, they're, they're, you're basically talking about robot arm fights over a, a outer limits video, right? Um, which was a nice injection of pop culture using outer limits. I was a big fan of the series um, yeah. and o- over top of that soundtrack that you mentioned, which I thought was really good. And it, it, you know, it, you got into it and it was a good way to go from that kind of fear of hackers opening with him being arrested to kind of an introduction to how, how Dade thinks, um, but also, you know, how, how he works and how he acts. Um, I thought, it, I thought it was good. And of course it turns into a typical high school drama. He's the new kid, you know, he's trying to find new friends. He needs to prove himself. There's a girl. I mean, it's all stuff that is in virtually every movie um, about any sort of teenage angst or coming of age story or whatever. And yeah, yeah it's, 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 it's what you would expect. It's formulaic, you know? Oh, yeah, yeah. And, you know, so there was – and those little details didn't just extend to the technology component, right? Because this really is a movie about the counterculture. Because the I, I was reading bits and pieces of what the uh, director had said about how he saw what this tech movement was. was something much larger than just techno nerds, right? It was something – it was like a movement. And, you know, there was also a lot of really cool little counter, countercultural touches, not just tech – you know, um, underground stuff like uh, the shirt when um, Dade and uh, Angelina Jolie, Kate, when they first meet and they don't know yet that they just had their little hacker battle in the TV station. It's the following day and she's wearing a T-shirt that says um, – I had the right thing because everything's like uh, too young, too fast to live, too young to die, right? And that is – and I remember because um, – I remember reading about this before. That was a slogan that Malcolm McLaren had lifted, I think, from a movie or something. But he had a Malcolm McLaren is the founder of the Sex Pistols. Okay, so he and she's wearing the T-shirt that he had found. He had a, a fashion store in King Street in in London, and he he had done a whole bunch of stuff. He had tried to kickstart a bunch of like youth culture movements he, before punk. Uh, he had, he tried to start a thing called Teddy Boys. It was a bunch of young guys, almost like droogs, um, except it, instead of wearing all white, they wore like suits. So he was real kind of involved in like youth counterculture. And that was like a big slogan from his T-shirt. Um, they had a lot of stuff. They had Lou, you know, people wearing Lou Reed shirts. And again, all this really cool stuff that at the time, there wasn't that kind of overlap. You know, you had like, you know, beat movement stuff, poetry, art, and, you know, psychedelics. And then like computer people – Actually, you know what? Let me. I, I stay, I'm going to correct myself there because there was things like fringeware review. There was a lot of cultural stuff, and there was actually a lot of that. You mentioned before in another show about the whole Earth Electronic Link, yeah. and that was a big uh, counterculture thing. So actually, Huge. yeah, and so there was actually a really good attention to detail about the overlap that I don't think a lot of people are aware of of the cool sort of subculture stuff, counterculture stuff, and the it, how, where it overlapped with technology. And I think this movie does do a good job of recognizing that, even if people watching it don't know to look for it. You know, one of the things we always talked about with Code Punk is we kind of had uh, listed it as, you know, programming technology and the digital lifestyle. So we were talking about the cultural aspects of it. And that kind of evolved into a tagline of life in the new Siberia, of course, taken from Douglas Rushkoff's Siberia book. Um, and this idea of 
because we were both big into cyberpunk, um, you know, how technology and culture evolve around each other and, and intersect and, um, and influence each other. Um, so there's always going to be that. I mean, there's a, there's a, there's actually a couple of clothing lines. One of them is Damascus apparel, which I had sent a link to a long time ago, where it's a very clean black with white lines or white with black lines. But the, the, um, the logos that they use and the imagery that they use and, and how they style their clothing and very reminiscent of cyberpunk without explicitly being cyberpunk. So those movements are still around. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I, I agree completely. Yeah. I mean, and there, and there was some funny stuff too, that I, I wondered that just in general continuity, I'd wonder if people had picked up on. So one of the FBI agents, um, that's kind of like frequently comes up. He wasn't the head, but he was like one of the like lieutenants or something. It was Mark Anthony who or Anthony? I don't know, but he's a popular Latin singer. Yeah, but I always, before I he, forgot was famous, that he was famous. Yeah, he's one of the FBI agents. In fact, the scene where like there's this like bald headed agent who's a little bit more gruff and like your standard like just angry cop, you know, angry agent. Uh, he's reading the hacker manifesto, and Mark Anthony's character is like, "That's cool," and the cop's like, "Cool, that's not cool." <laughs> bunch of commie crap and you know it's it's funny exchange so that character later is in a scene where kate uh, acid burn angelina jolie's character throws a big party and that fbi agent is at the party but he's not like undercover he's just there dancing right so i had always wonder if there was like some sort of scene or something that had been like cut where, yeah. where he's like more like he's one of those like oh, i'm he's just like the, a cool younger guy who happened to be an FBI agent and also into the counterculture. It was I, I thought that was a neat thread. They make a point in two different occasions in the movie to show him dancing and not like spying, but like he's into it. He's just there vibing on the whole moment. I just thought that was kind of a neat moment that like didn't go anywhere, but they made a point to show it. See, now I got to go back and watch that. I don't remember him dancing. I do remember like when you mentioned Mark Anthony, I do remember him being in there as one of the FBI agents. I didn't realize that it was before he was famous. Uh, so now I got to, I got to, I got to rent me a copy of this and not on VHS. I'll, I'll do it. On, I'll do it <laughs> yeah. On you know, it's, it's funny. I, you know, I remember, I remember that scene. I remember wondering if he was going to, if, if that meant something, you know, when I first right. you know saw the movie and then, you know, I'm like, oh, whatever. And then, you know, some years later, He's now famous before he marries Jennifer Lopez and he's just singing. I'm like, oh, it's that dude from the movie Hackers. And they're like, what are you talking about? I'm like, I don't know. He played like an FBI agent. They're like, I don't think that's the same guy. Well, you got a couple guy. of notes in here that I was actually looking at. I didn't go into this much detail and research and some of the the uh, connections, but um, some of the names of the characters actually match up quite well with other areas, such as um, serial killer's name being Emmanuel Goldstein, which, of course, we talked about him during the Kevin Mitnick episode. Emmanuel right. Gold, Goldstein being the name uh, adopted by the editor of 2600 Magazine. Um, and then, of course, uh, uh, what you mentioned, uh, Phantom Freak, uh, King of Nine X. Yeah, King of Nine X, which is great. Yeah, Phantom Freak is a little Latino guy, and uh, I loved it when he said, "Ah, oh, the King of." He said he's talking to to um, Dade Mer Dade uh, Crash Override right, right. in the meeting. He's like, uh, "Yeah, I'm the Phantom Freak, King of Nine X," and I'm thinking it's funny because nobody even know. I remember what Nine X was from back then. It's the New York uh, New England Exchange. It was a telephone company. Eventually, all the telephone companies that we would refer to as Ma Bell because it was right. distributed as like Bell Pacific, Bell Atlantic. Um, they all just merged. Now they're Verizon. It's just one huge conglomeration. But yeah, at the time, 9X was a thing. And it's just really funny that there's all these old 
sort of references to things that don't even exist anymore. And I, I actually really love that. You know what I mean? It's almost like a time capsule because yeah. it isn't just a kind of a fun playing with the culture at the time. And honestly, this really is a movie. And I, I hate to kind of be, um, I don't know what the word is, but like it, I, the word that jumped to mind was exclusive. Uh, mm-hmm. But in a way, this movie—if you—if if some twenty, you know, twenty-two-year-old or nineteen-year-old kid who's real into programming or hacking watches this movie today, I'm um, sure he can go look stuff up, or she can go look stuff up. But so much of the subtle little details are going to fly by them. Like, what's nine X? Who knows? Who cares? Right? Like, they just might not even register what that means. It just sounds like corporate speak. You know, but these were like these were actual references to real things at the time. And if you weren't around then, you might not get it. But if you were into the culture at the time, you're like, oh my God, 9X, that's funny. Or maybe I'm just a super nerd. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, probably the, both are true. But <laughs> the other part that I found interesting is is when they, you know the, the, they mentioned the books and uh, you reference down here is the Rainbow Books, um, which are like yeah these these hacker books. And in the in the movie, they 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 make it sound like it's such an, Oh my God, I can't believe you got them. Like it's something exclusive, but couldn't you just mail away and get copies of these for free? Like there wasn't a, or self-addressed stamped envelope or something. It wasn't, you it wasn't could, that it was hard to get. It wasn't hard to get what I, I had, um, I forget how I found the number, but you could call the department of defense and you could ask for the rainbow books, which were basically, they were all different books on, um, government standards and network security. And you could just say like, I remember I called and I, I just said, I'm, I'm starting up a small um, internet company and I just wanted to get uh, government standards and best practices on network security and hardening your security. And they took my name and address and just mailed me a box full of the books. And um, I eventually got rid of them because I just got tired of lugging them around. They weren't really impressive. I read through them, but again, I was never like a network engineer, so I couldn't really understand what was what they were talking about. It was not anything exciting. In the movie, they do kind of spice it up a little bit by like they do mention the DOD, but the Rainbow right. Books are all DOD. Uh, but yeah, they mentioned like the pink shirt, the pink shirt, red shirt guy, which was funny because isn't that a reference to like Star Trek? Think, yeah, right. Uh, well, there's also a red shirt. Um, it's not. Um, I'm trying to remember his name now. Um, uh, he was a Microsoft engineer. He still is. But um, yes, yes, you are correct. Uh, yeah. I can't remember his name because Scott Hanselman keeps jumping in my mind, but it's not. It's somebody else who was like adjacent to him. Scott Guthrie, maybe? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was Scott Guthrie. That's right. And yeah, and he actually, his Twitter uh, pick and still maybe it was the red shirt that he always wore. I don't know if it's the same person. I didn't actually think to look at that, Um, but that's pretty neat. But yeah, so again, the movie does take liberties with things to make it more interesting. And I, I, I respect that. Like it would be boring to be like, oh, yeah, it's just a bunch of DD books on network security. That's not exciting. You know, and even the graphics on the computers, you know, when, when the people are going and they're hacking, it's not a command line interface. It's all this stuff that I don't even think video cards could output this. (laughs) These are literally just videos. It's not even CGI. It's just like videos of like, you know, stuff happening. There's like a Mandelbrot set, you know, at one point when they finally get all the code, the Mandelbrot comes into picture. Um, that may be CGI. That looked like CGI, but it was the only CGI. I think normally when they're hacking into the Gibson, big air quotes, it was like towers of like these, looks like etched glass or something. It was like, you're just flying through towers of etched glass with words on it, which right, would be like, like a VR representation of servers right. with, with yeah, data right, yeah. information in it. 
Yeah, and it would almost be like the way Gibson, William Gibson, described cyberspace, you know, like kind of like neon geometrics, you know, and that's kind of what they were seeing. And I think it's cool. And if you're able to suspend disbelief, it's it's less about really um, seeing that uh, as, you know, realistic and more about kind of seeing it through the eyes of a hacker, how exciting and kind of sexy and, you know, really like you're just into it, you know. Well, remember um, that the server, the, the the machine that they're breaking into is, of course, called the Gibson. Um, <laughs> so that's obviously a clear reference to William Gibson, right. um, which was, you know, which which is always entertaining to hear. And of course, the Gibson was being protected by uh, a Pendulet, which is a good role for Pendulet yeah. from Penn and Teller. <laughs> and the, so the, random. It is. I think my favorite part of the movie, or at least I want to say my favorite scene, scene that 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 to me is, is peak hackers and, and peak 1995 is uh, Fisher Stevens picking up the disc uh, where he's, he's basically tailing behind a car on his uh, roller ba- blades or whatever. And he, <laughs> he veers off to grab the disc and then veers back onto the back of the car as it takes him away. And it was just, Oh it yeah. Was just so hilarious. So it was Actually, surreal watching that scene. That's a really good point. And something I did notice uh, a while ago, but not when my rewatching was even that, like, you know, how you're talking about Fisher Stevens or the, um, the virus. Was it the virus or the plague? The plague, the plague, the plague. Sorry. Um, yeah. How the plague was sort of like this old school hacker and, you know, these high school kids, like the new generation and you've got the plague on a skateboard while everyone else is on rollerblades. Like the times, man. Right. So they're kind of like showing like, oh, you know, he's from the eighties, you know, he's doing all that eighties stuff and they're like, you know, hipper than that. Again, Little details that I think might not matter to somebody who aren't, isn't paying that deep attention. But if you are, it's kind of like, oh, I get it. Like they're kind of indicating, you know, he's the old guard doing it the old way. Um, right. Yeah. And then, of course, in the film, Joey, uh, one of their, their friends, he's the one that breaks into Gibson to try to prove himself to his friends. And then he gets arrested. Um, and, and basically he had stored what he pulled off the disc in his house. And so this turns into a film. It goes from a high school drama to a, you know, save your friend against the authorities, you know, conspiracy film. Um, so, again, we get we get some very tip prototypical um you know, movie, uh, uh, tropes, you know, throughout, um, but under the backdrop of kind of, you know, this, this almost, um, you know, cyberpunk esque hackers culture. And of course, law enforcement is absolutely clueless. Like they usually are in films like these, right? <laughs> then, which is great, right? You need that foil, right? Right. Um, but I think that, uh, you know, one of the things that I thought was really funny too, was you, you getting towards the end of the movie, and they do manage, you know, they got to go through the whole thing to get like a better copy of this, you know, the evidence, right, that they're not the villains, um, that the plague is. And so they do the whole, they're trashing our rights, hack the planet, you know, Dade, uh, Crash Override, you know, does this sort of like behind the back with his hands handcuffed, pulls the disc out of his wherever back pocket or something and just does like a little fling it into a trash can, which, OK, fine. Yeah. Um, but he's just like they're trashing. And because um, uh, serial killer uh, is like he went and did whatever he had to do, but then was still off to the side. So he's like ready to kind of go get the evidence. He man, I can't imagine how many trash cans would be in Grand Central Station Station, which is where I where they were. At least right, that's what for, the setting was. I don't know where to go through. Right. Like 
wow, that's a pretty good guess. He did. He found it either on try one or he's been there all night <laughs> just sorting through trash. I, I always I always found that to be like, man, you're really, you know, <laughs> you're you're really playing the odds there by assuming that that disc is still in the trash can or yeah. in, the, in a trash can that your friend can actually find. Um, yeah, that was a scene that always kind of they didn't irk me, but it was always kind of like, ah, oh, man, I, you know, too much left up to chance there. Could have ruined the whole film <laughs> if it yeah, wasn't a, yeah, if it right. wasn't a film. They would have never accomplished it. I don't. Think. Yeah, there's a hundred things that could have gone wrong in that situation. Um, but you know, but again, they got to expedite it and kind of get to the, get to the story. Um, and I, I still, you know, I think it's kind of funny to sit there and you got like Matthew Lillard pulling gum off of it. I'm like, wow. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. I mean, uh, I guess, I guess to wrap up the film and then we can wrap up kind of, uh, what we're talking about. Um, they all get arrested, but of course, uh, serial killer goes and he finds, do you remember what the other two hackers names were? They were kind of like a, like a twin hacker collective or whatever that, that yeah. the television airwaves. So um, the friend, Joey, didn't have a name, remember? So there was a big dialogue in the beginning where um, uh, his name now was it Phantom Freak? Um, yeah, Phantom Freak is like, Joey, you got to get a cool handle. So Joey never had a handle. And then Lord Nikon, because he had okay, an eidetic yeah, memory. Yeah, yeah. yeah, so Lord Nikon was sort of like... He was almost like the elder statesman, I think, because when they all go to his place, he's got like the Jedi hood on and he's kind of like they're all a little bit like um, kind of pandering to him. And mm-hmm. pandering is not the right word, but he definitely comes off like he's a little bit the elder statesman, even though he's probably like about the same age. Um, and actually one of my fa- I think he's probably my favorite character. Um, well, no, serial killer is definitely my favorite character, but I really <laughs> like Lord Nikon a lot. Um I don't know the actor's name, but he was also in The Crow. A uh, great actor. Um, yeah. So I really think that there was a lot of great chemistry between all of them. Really, really great. I think my favorite scene as we get towards wrapping this up was uh, had nothing to do with anything that we talked about. It's when uh, Serial Killer, they're, they're all sitting and they're talking about the books. They're talking about how you got to get a good sweet hack with a common password you know, usages. And there's a point where uh, Phantom Freak yells it. Uh, serial killer for eating all his fries, Matthew Lillard, and he blames Joey and just makes his face. He's like, oh, I'm going to hurt you to Joey. So there's like this exchange between Joey and serial killer, which I just, I don't know. I laugh to myself every single time I see it. I never get sick of it. And I have seen this movie too many times. I mean, it, the, Matthew Lillard has made a ton of money off of just being himself. Uh, yeah, same same style of characterizations. And, you know, I mean, with just enough subtleties to fit the role. Um, yeah. Yeah. But ultimately in the film, I mean, everything is right in the end. You know, they, they find out the big conspiracy, the plague gets arrested. They all get, you know, set off scot-free and um, obviously crash and burn get together. Cause that was the whole point of their names being crash and burn. Um, right. But but one of the things that you actually wrote in your notes, I wanted to bring up real quick is that you were incredibly envious of the laptop that they had, oh, yeah. that, that <laughs> plague had mailed Dade. Right. Yeah, so that laptop, and I, I really wanted a laptop at the time, and I couldn't afford one, like I said. So basically, for me, it was all just hacking phone networks from pay phones and stuff. And um, yeah, so he gets this laptop that is all clear. It's like it's like transparent, and you can see the circuitry underneath. And um, yeah, so he gets that. And I, it always bothered me in the movie that he never like in the end. And I guess it makes sense now as an adult, like you wouldn't use a computer that your enemy just gave to you. Right. But everything in the end, like, man, you got that sweet computer. Use that, man. What the hell? I was very, very jealous of that. And I, I still think about that thing, even though at this point now it's about as powerful as my watch. Um, but uh, 
and another thing too in terms of hardware in this movie, I tried to find at one point I did look it up a long, long time ago, the heads up display that Crash Override uses in the end when they're hacking and like, you know, they're doing the cinematic scenes with the phone booths that are spinning right. with the crowds around it. That heads up display that uh, Crash Override has was a thing. And I could, I, first of all, heads up, display, you can't, like, there's no way to search for that in any modern browser with so much information on the internet to single that thing out. Like I tried Crash Override, Zero Cool, Dade Murphy, uh, all these variations with heads up display, head mounted display. I can't find that thing, man. I wanted to know where it was. I would still buy that just to have it. <laughs> now that was the only, my only, you know, my, my only complaint about the film or only, only legitimate complaint about the film is when they do have the scenes like that, where they're hacking. Um, a lot of times they'll show like mental imagery of what's going through the hacker's brain and like none of those form formula. It's not hacking. It's like all these different, you know, physics and, and mathematical yeah. formulas that have not like at one point, I think the E equals MC squared actually floats by. And it has a sound. It was like, Whoosh, when it flies by it's like is that all these sound effects is like you know these l l geometric light shapes are just flying around in the ether <laughs> <laughs> but overall i thought it i thought it was a, a fine film obviously we've referenced it enough we actually watched this film at work as part of bad movie friday and oh, really nice. it wasn't it wasn't bad movie friday it was nerd friday because we also watched real genius with val kilmer which <laughs> is a, just a fantastic film to watch oh yeah um but um you know this is one that you and i because of our age yeah, it's something that we can go back to. It's an easy reference point because we were much older when the when the film started, you know, came out. So it was like one of those films where, hey, I'm I'm old enough that I have more of a personality, and <laughs> you know, I'm kind of I'm, I'm entering into my rebel stage of life. And and here you get this film on on hackers um, with beautiful people in it, and you know, yeah. cool cool clothing, and you know, a lot of equipment that we didn't have access to. Yep. Yeah, it was definitely the the fantasy like. The ultimate fantasy version of the 90s for the hacker nerd. Like this was the world that we wanted to live in or at least that we wanted to be able to afford to look like in the world that we're living in. So, you know, it's always nice to go back and revisit that and be like, oh, I could dress like that now, but people will make fun of me. Did you have any last thoughts? I know you had a couple of notes we, we didn't quite touch on. I didn't know if you wanted to bring up the risk system um, or anything else uh, in here. No, I think that, um, I mean, all of my notes t covered on my experiences with the hack culture in the 90s and how it overlapped with the movie. And I ultimately, I just think that um, it's, it's, it's a movie worth revisiting for anybody. It's a good time. Um, there's some cheesy dialogue, but also a lot of cool stuff in there. Like, is it genuinely, in my opinion, is a genuinely good movie uh, for entertainment? I agree. And I, th I think it's actually, pers I mean, other than maybe Sherlock it, to, or not Sherlock, but, um, uh, elementary, I think it's one of Johnny Lee Miller's finest films and one of his earlier films. Um, same could be said for, for Angelina Jolie, despite all of the acclaim that she has gotten over her career. Um, and, and you know, and, uh, I think her earlier films such as Gia and even hackers shows greater range, you know, Gia hackers and then, um, girl interrupted were probably some of her, her more experimental films where she was able to, you know, uh, play different characters. Now I think she kind of, uh, gets typecast in kind of somewhat similar roles. Yeah. I would love it if they got together and did a sequel. I would, would love be, it. That would be crazy. They, they would all be plague <laughs> at that point. They would be the, older. yeah, well they would, yeah, or they could be like, I don't know, either like elders, like corporate 
like mentors or something. I have a new young, whatever. I don't know, but it'd be great. I'd still, I'd watch it. I'd pay money. <laughs> I, I would, I would watch. I would pay. You know, I got nothing else to do. I'm in quarantine. Pay money <laughs> watch it right on my own TV. Um, all right. Well, uh, you know, if that's all we got um, until next time, talk to you later. Take care, everybody. That's it for this episode of Code Punk. You can subscribe to this podcast on Google Play, iTunes, and Stitcher, or listen to it on the web at codepunk.io. You can find Bill on Twitter at Norathustra and Michael on Twitter at Zool. <laughs>